0: The very uh, beginning of Scripture. You have Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They have uh, just committed a sin, and out of that, they realize their nakedness, right? They realize their vulnerability. They realize their shame at what they have done. And so God clothes them. That's one of His first acts for his people. And after the fall is to clothe them with animal skins, lives for lives from the very beginning, having to do with our sin. Think about um, Noah, not a pretty story. It's a new creation in a sense, right? God is kind of starting over with a blank slate. But once again, you've got Noah finds himself eating from the fruit of the vine this time. He overdoes it a little bit on the wine. Finds himself drunk, naked, and doing shameful things. Again. All having to do with this. Now at this point, he, he was taking off his clothes that God had already provided for him. Then of course there's uh, Joseph, right? And the coat of many colors. You guys know this story. And um, what, a, what a mixed bag of, of motivations and things going on there there's a father who wants to uh, give something nice to his son but of course he he doesn't treat his children fairly and so even though this this piece of clothing is is a beautiful thing and no doubt well-intentioned on some level um, it ends up just causing all kinds of division and and issues and once again um, sin and clothing are kind of all Wrapped up together. Clothing's important in the ancient world, right? And it's important in today's world, too. I mean, we and for all the same reasons. I mean, think about it. What, what is clothing for? I mean, it, it keeps us uh, safe from the elements, right? Protects us from the sun and the wind and, and all of that. Um, it also has to do with not only our, our uh, kind of our, our safety, but our self-expression, right? Um, the, the coat of many colors was like a, a gift, so it was a, it was a sign of love. Uh, from a father to a son. And in, in so many ways today, right? I mean, when you were a teenager, do you remember, and, and some of you guys are teenagers, so you are currently living this right now, where you deliberately wear things your parents won't like, right? For, for self-expression purposes. Nothing inherently wrong with that, right? Um, you know what else? It also has to do with status, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Clothing has to do with status, we make judgments on people, other people, based on what they're wearing. I'm not saying that's a great practice. I'm just saying that's what happens. Right? So it's important in the ancient world. It's, in, it's important today. But you know what's most important to God is not the physical clothing, but rather the spiritual clothing. Now, uh, what does that mean, spiritual clothing? So that, that's kind of what we're talking about today today. We, we've, we've had this beautiful, breathtaking vision from the Apostle Paul... ...in this letter from prison, right? He's writing from prison to the churches at Colossae, Laodicea... ...and, of course, to us. And, and it's this vision of the cosmic scope of who Christ is, what he's done. The supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of the way of Christ. The, um, the truth that he is no one less than the creator of all things incarnate as a human being, that he brings peace, reconciliation, healing to the world. And and this is going to connect in because Jesus Christ is the source of life, right? Because he is the true tree of life. Connect that back to Genesis where we would just work. Because he is the true tree of life. Our relationship with him has the opposite effect of Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the sinful action, which resulted in their shame in their nakedness. Eating from the tree of life now has the effect of clothing us with him. Okay, we're going to get to more of that in a minute, right? But, but basically it puts to death in us those things that would lead us to death. Instead of igniting in us death itself, which is what uh, that first forbidden fruit episode uh, uh Uh, enacted, right? Putting to death those earthly things. We talked about that last week, the desires of our bodies, the destructive words of our mouths. That's what eating from the tree of life does. So putting to death those earthly things, though, let's get this out of the way early on, is definitely scary. I want to acknowledge that because sometimes it feels like we are putting to death part of ourselves. And when we're taking that dirty clothes off, it's like we know we're going to be vulnerable. And so we don't want to do that. It's scary. And in a sense, we really are putting to death a part of ourselves. It really has been an expression of who we are. And so to take that off, that's scary. We're exposed then to the elements. It's an act of faith. Yet in the same way that God clothed adam and eve in the garden with skins of animals after the fall he clothes us with christ yes we're going to make ourselves vulnerable but the same way that he was there for adam and eve he's going to be there for me and you with the clothing of christ and get this now the skins of animals wouldn't last forever right they're going to decay they're going to fall apart gonna to have to just keep killing more animals the life of christ that we receive is eternal It never wears out. And that's because Christ is eternal. And unlike the animals that stayed dead, Christ is alive. So what does it mean to receive Christ's life? It means that when we receive that from him, we receive life forever. We receive eternal life. What does it mean to be clothed with Christ? It means that the the shelter, the identity, the status its all wrapped up in this metaphor of clothing, all of that We receive from him the same things that he has, status, status, excuse me, identity, shelter. We get that, and we keep it forever. And we receive this as a pure gift of grace. It's always been grace from beginning to end. You know, in the garden, same thing, uh, uh, Adam and Eve, I mean, they had just sent. They'd do anything to deserve that clothing, that shelter, that provision from God. No, he did it. Why? Because he loves them, right? Same thing for me and you. But here's the thing, guys. We do have to accept it. When when you have little kids, you know this episode, right? No, I don't want to put on my shirt. Oh, yes, you will, young lady, right? And you're wrestling them. You're forcing the shirt on them. God's not going to do that with us. God will not force that clothing upon us. We have to accept it. And it's not enough to just acknowledge that our new clothes are there, right? Um, when we're trying to get our kids out the door, it's not enough for, for, for us to say, hey, we laid out your clothes for you. You need to go put them on so we can go. And for them to just be like, yeah, I know, and walk out the door naked. No, you can't do that, right? Like, you just can't. Uh, we have to accept it. We have to own it. We have to put it on. And this is why... Paul issues this as a command in Colossians 3 and 12, put on then. It's a command. It's something you can do. Now, if we are being renewed in the knowledge of who we really are now in Christ, by looking to him, by learning from him, imitating him, then we are equipped and enabled by the Holy Spirit to take action Nobody's expecting you to do this all on your own, in your own power, or any of that stuff. You're going to be enabled to do it by the Holy Spirit, but you still have to be willing to do it. This isn't about earning our salvation, okay? I don't, don't ever, when I talk about we got to do stuff, I'm not saying it's about earning our salvation. I would never, ever say that. It's not about earning, it's about expressing our salvation, okay? Notice how St. Paul grounds his command in God's initiative in relationship. I want to drive this home. Put on then. So there's the command, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God chose you first. He made you holy and beloved first. Then you can put stuff on. God freely chose to lay down his life in Christ for the whole world. Jesus says nobody took that life away from him, but he chose to lay it down for me and for you. And for those of us that have responded then in faith, okay, we believe this, we're going to trust this. We are now part of a chosen community. We're part of a people and a kingdom even that has no equal. And see when we respond in faith and we know then that we're chosen, we know that we've become holy, which means we're set apart, means we're beloved, loved by God. That means we're close to the heart and mind of God. And it's it's out of that assurance that we are Beloved of God and safe and secure in his eternal kingdom, like we said last week. Beloved of God and safe and secure in his eternal kingdom that we can begin to put on the new self, That's what this new clothing means. So Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Five attributes, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now why did these get kind of singled out here? I think the reason is because these are all preeminent qualities of God as he is revealed to his people throughout history. I mean, think about that with me for those of you that kind of have a, a big picture of the Old Testament, right? That God's compassion is what drove his mercy on Adam and Eve and on all people on all of us undeserving sinners. That it's God's kindness that led his people through the wilderness that leads us to repentance. It's his humility in bearing with this rebellious people for all these years. It's his humility in even becoming part of his creation, identifying so closely with humanity that actually made the way for our salvation. It's his meekness, it's his willingness to take on himself all these bad things that we've done, all of our mistakes, all of our sins, his meekness in being willing to be led like a lamb to the slaughter on a cross. It was that that overcame the powers of evil. It's his patience with us that shows us just how much he wants each person to live forever with him. Sometimes we wonder why God is taking so long. We, have, The psalmist asks this question. It's okay to ask God this question. How long, O oh Lord? Why? Well, it's really for our benefit. We might not always see that, but it's because he's patient with us. Amazingly, right? Grounded in the actions of God and in relationship with God, we are empowered to put on then the character of God. It's this putting on the character of God himself in Christ, fueled by the life of Christ, that then transforms not just the character of individuals, but the character of the church into something really special. And it's that character that actually allows us to work through things and uh, uh, kind of transcend things that would normally tear a human community apart. So things like political opinions, cultural or ethnic backgrounds, simply disagreeing about who should be in charge. You notice these are the things that are tearing apart the world outside the church. But if we clothe ourselves with Christ, these are the things that are transcended. It's that five-fold character of God that doesn't just equip but when we're really living it, when we put it on, it compels the church to take on the character of our Lord. We cannot uh, be divided about all those things and have the character of God at the same time. But when we do put that on, that's when we become the kind of place that's described in verse 13 It's a place where you're bearing with one another. I mean, you can't bear with one another if, if you're all like happy-go-lucky, living in perfect harmony, right? Like you have to be a place with different opinions, different ways of doing things and all that in order to bear with one another. It's that love that allows us to that. We bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, Paul is anticipating this is going to happen. We're not all going to get along all the time. Then you forgive one another. You see, I I really think the rest of the world is going to be all about keeping grudges. They're going to be all about bringing up the past and this and that. But in the community of Christ, clothed in Christ, we forgive each other. Why? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Because we're not to be any, any different than Jesus, really. So pay close attention to what comes next. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. How can love have this unifying effect? Well, not because love is simply affection, okay? Affection is part of love. Don't get me wrong, right? Um, there's, a, there's a saying that, um, uh, you know, I don't have to like you, I just have to love you, you know? Uh, maybe you've heard that. I, just, I don't think that's really fair. I mean, I, I, I do think you, there, there is a, an affection that is part of real love, but it's more than just an affection as well, right? It's all of these things—compassion, kindness, humility— meekness, patience, all of those things are expressions of love. They're all aspects of love. They're all grounded in and coming from, in other words, a fundamental commitment to the flourishing of another person. So love is what is driving all of those things in our community. So the apostle goes on, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful, and be thankful. I don't think this specific verse, by the way, is is, is just about kind of uh, inner peace of the individual. Okay, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Okay, yes, God gives us inner peace, no doubt about it. Uh, but really, I think in, in this spot here, it's it's really an exhortation to let the peace that Christ has established on the cross between God and the world and between all of us believers to let that peace be what rules our hearts together. You guys track with me on that? So this is why he says the church was called to this in one body. So the idea is that when the inevitable conflict comes up, like in a church like ours conflict is going to come up that we return again and again to the gospel word of peace that this is the objective reality that christ has made peace between us and god and because of that between all of us and we allow that that truthful word to be the regulating principle that that is what governs our actions and response to that conflict that when we encounter it we then say okay but I know I'm really at peace with this person. That's the deepest reality, because God has made peace. And the fact that we have that kind of guidance, because that's, we're not just going to come up with that on our own. That has to be revealed to us by God in His Son Jesus Christ. And the fact that we have that gospel word, that we have that guidance about what our community can and should be and is, in fact is, spiritually, man, that should make us so thankful, right? That's why he says, "Be thankful. What a blessing to know that and to live that. So it's the attitude of gratitude for what God has already done in Christ that, that allows the local church then, it's me and you, to not be so concerned about manufacturing unity, right? That we have come up with all these ways of trying to manufacture unity based on some kind of standard that we come up with. There's all kinds of ways to do that. And, and I'm not saying there's not... It's okay to have some guidelines for membership and all this kind of stuff. But sometimes we try to manufacture something that has really, we just need to manifest. And see, there's a difference between manufacturing and manifesting. In manufacturing, we're, we're literally making it happen. and manifesting it, we're allowing it to happen. And, and so th- this unity actually objectively exists because Christ is in all of us. And that, that's definitely an act of faith sometimes when we look across the table at our neighbor. We have, it's an act of faith, maybe, to think that. I get it. Uh, but that's how we operate. That Christ is in all of us. And, and that gives us that sense of unity. So, so we read, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, Colossians 3.16. I love that verse. Um, The word of Christ here could mean either. It could mean two things. It could mean either the word about Christ, which is, of course, that he lived that perfect life that we could never live, that he died to defeat death on the cross, that he was raised from the dead to give us life, or it could also mean the teachings of Christ. Either or. I'm happy to receive both meanings there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So I'm happy to take both of those meanings and say, let's talk about all that stuff in our community all the time what God has done for us in Christ what Christ taught about himself and God and us and what that looks like in practice let's let it dwell with us richly right, we want there to be an abundance of it, we want to be a gospel saturated community which means we want to be a scripturally saturated community, which is why I'm so grateful for the tradition that we've inherited as Anglicans Is such a Bible-centric tradition. And it's also why we do things like catechesis, for instance, after church, which you should all be here for, because it's uh, uh, not—the Sunday morning activity, what we're doing right here is definitely the core activity of the church, right? It's the engine that drives our life together, absolutely. But it's not the only activity of the church. Let the Word of Christ dwell with us richly, so not just here, but out there— uh, in, in times like catechusis, also, I know many of you get together, you know, during the week for dinner or whatever. You know, you get the families together. Uh, you hang out. You call each other on the phone. Those are, those are opportunities to remind each other of the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. And so we, we allow that to dwell in us richly. It's that received word from and about Christ that we that we dwell on, we meditate on, we ground our lives in that. And Paul seems to think that if we get the word that we're almost going to have no choice but to erupt in songs old and new right springing from the gospel truth of the Bible that there's a picture of worship here that of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs uh, the, the, it goes back to gratitude again with thankfulness in your hearts to God he says right as we meditate on the gospel we're going to want to sing about the gospel and we're going to be thankful. This is the primary focus. Well, I should say this, the primary marker of a gospel-focused community. A gospel-focused church, in other words, is a thankful church. A gospel-focused church is a thankful church. And that goes for the entirety of our lives together, of course, not just when we gather for corporate worship. So he says, verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we go again. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Are you guys? Do you think that Paul thinks it's important that we're thankful? Man, he just keeps coming back to it, doesn't he? I don't want you to miss this part, though. To act in the name of the Lord. To do everything in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, to act in the name of the Lord. This is a little scary. It's a big responsibility. To act in the name of the Lord is to act with his authority. It is to act in his character And it is to give him the credit, his authority, his character, and giving him the credit in everything you do. At the end of the day, I think we sometimes overcomplicate evangelism. Bear with me here, this is connected. Because I I really think our primary witness to the world is really about being this kind of community that Paul is describing. That's our primary witness to the world. Um, Witnessing to this kind of community, living in this way by the grace of God all the time, not just on Sundays... And then boldly and explicitly verbalizing that this is all because of Jesus, by the way. And giving God the glory for that. And I think that's the primary mode of of evangelism for the church. Now, um, please hear me. I'm not saying that our witness is in being a perfect church. Yes, we are to act like Jesus. We're to act with the authority of Jesus. We are to act um, in such a way that we're always giving Jesus the credit... But we know we're not going to be perfect. We know we're going to mess up. Okay? So I'm, I'm not uh, trying to, to paint a picture of some kind of perfection that we have to achieve in order to witness to the world. No, because listen, as we read, we just read it earlier, the way that Paul envisions the church expressing Christ's perfection to each other is forgiving each other's imperfections. So I'm going to say that again. The way that Paul envisions the church expressing Christ's perfection to each other is forgiving each other's imperfection. So it's not about being a perfect church, and we want to be a perfect church, but it's not about being a perfect church. It's about being a repenting, forgiving, loving church. You can do all that without being perfect. So this is something God will actually do for us in the present, right now, if we allow ourselves then to be clothed with Christ, and, if, and, and we allow ourselves to be clothed in Christ by putting our faith in him, by throwing ourselves on him as our only way, our only truth, our only life. The reformers had this saying, sola Christus, which means Christ alone, Christ alone. That's how we put on Christ, by making that also our motto, Christ alone. Great reformer Martin Luther wrote to the Pope about this. He said, faith unites the soul to Christ as a wife to her husband. All that Christ has becomes the property of the believing soul. And all the soul has becomes the property of Christ. Thus, by means of faith, the soul is delivered from every sin and clothed with the eternal righteousness of her husband, Jesus Christ. Blessed union! Exclamation point. The rich, the noble, and holy spouse, Jesus Christ, unites in marriage with that poor, guilty, and despised wife, delivers her from every ill, and adorns her with the most costly blessings. That's you and me, poor and guilty, yet adorned with the most costly blessings in Jesus. I'm going to close today with a prayer from the late Anglican evangelist John Stott. So pray, pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have given your spirit to live in your people as his temple. Receive our prayers for your worldwide church. May its study be diligent, its worship joyful, its fellowship loving its behavior righteous, its service humble, and its witness continuous. Fill us all with the same Spirit today, that we may be clothed with power for our witness and ministry, and that your name with the Father and the Holy Spirit may be forever glorified. In the name then of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.